you know that Bitcoin uses as much energy as some entire countries? Bitcoin has a massive network of miners called ASICs that require a lot of energy to mine and secure the Bitcoin network. So for Bitcoin to be successful, it's critical to have access to cheap and reliable energy. That's why miners are moving on flocks to Texas and running their mining operations off of natural gas wells, wind turbines, solar farms, and on-grid applications. But up to now, there hasn't been a place for Bitcoin miners and energy producers to connect with each other. That's why Digital Wildcatters is bringing everyone to the energy capital of the world, Houston, Texas, for two days of network and learning at the premier mining event and power. Maybe you're an experienced miner or energy producer that's looking for partnerships, or maybe you're new to the space and you want to learn and get your foot in the door. There's going to be content and opportunities for people from all different backgrounds. March 30th, the 31st, Houston, Texas, and power. Get more information at digitalwildcatters.com. Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Our second youngest guest ever, Tim. I was, I was actually doing the math on that when I saw when he graduated. I was thinking, is he our, sec is he our youngest or second youngest? And I remembered Andrew. I was like, oh, yeah, but never mind. He's definitely it our second youngest. The, Andrew Chan, whose career continues to progress along now, he's like fully immersed in the venture capital world, came on when he was 21, right? And I think he just like, oh, yeah. I just finished a, a couple finals up and now I'm doing this podcast. And Jose's yes. like, oh man, he he was getting started young, that guy. Still wow. in college. Uh, that's That was uh, amazing. But anyway. I told you, Tim, we're going to be working for him someday. Anyways, this isn't Andrew Chan's pod. It's Jose Rodriguez time. J-Rod. One of my favorite young, forward-thinking, technology-centric engineers in the oil and gas industry. I worry a little bit, Tim, that due to perception in the market and the general desire to get away from oil and gas, that a lot of people like Jose are going into different industries and applying their data skills and love of technology, softwares, you know, so on and so forth into other things. But it's fun to see somebody like Jose who, you know, went through sort of the whole program. He's been trained and now he's like fully immersing himself and being, he'll probably be one of the best reservoir engineers in the country at some point. You know what I mean? So um, nonetheless, I wanted to, to bring on Jose, uh, dude just turned 25, you know, kind of building something here in Houston. And, and Jose, we just, we just kind of wanted to, to have you on wrap a little bit today about uh, all the things going on in, in your world. But first and foremost, who who is Jose Rodriguez, man? Who are you? Well, uh, first off, thanks for having me. You know, pleasure to be here. Uh, well, a quick intro. So, yeah, relatively new to the industry. Uh, started as a reservoir engineer for a small to mid-sized operator back in 2019. Um, you know, I was born in Mexico, became a citizen in 2018. Kind of came in with zero connections. Uh, nice. You know, when I first started, I, uh, I concurrently did a master's in data science as well. Uh, just recently wrapped that up in uh, a year ago, 2021, maybe 2021. Um, yeah, that's a quick intro about me. You know, kind of the data focus side of it was just kind of when I first got into the industry, I was baffled at how we were doing things, kind of like how everything was being done in Excel, legacy systems, and I got really annoyed by it, kind of almost pissed off by it. I'm like, there's no way we're doing, like, there's no way why we should be doing things this way when there's better ways to do things out there. Um, it's tough to wrestle an uh, Excel away from an engineer. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, the biggest thing was when we were trying to do like, you know, 
plots and everything else within Excel, you know, maintain databases within Excel. And I'm like, you know, I had just taken like a Python course my senior year and I'm like, why are we doing things this way? This is ridiculous. And, you know, nobody seemed to have a problem with it. They yeah. weren't trained in it like you were, mm-hmm. right? I mean, well, so, so you went to Houston. Are you from Houston? You said you grew up in Mexico. When did you come to the U.S.? So I came to the U.S. when I was uh, five. Kind of grew up in Katy, Texas, been there basically my entire life. Then went to the University of Houston for both my uh, bachelor's and my master's. So stayed local. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's pretty common. I'm seeing that that uh, the path that you took. So a lot of petroleum engineers continuing on to get, whether it's mid-career uh, type of thing or right after school, continuing on to get the data analytics or the data science or the machine learning Mm-hmm. type of uh, uh, experience beyond that. So that's not an uncommon path, I think. Uh, I don't know, uh, Jose, do you see the same thing? No, definitely, definitely. I, uh, what I'm seeing, most people kind of do like boot camps or, you know, just trying to uh, YouTube stuff, uh, actually full on doing a master's. I've seen a handful of people doing that, kind of like in the same uh, peer group as I am. But, you know, I think a lot of it has to do, uh, a lot of people, I think, are doing it, one, for career progression, and then, two, to kind of have, like, an out within the industry. You know, if things ever go south, that's ah. first kind of why I did it. Um, wow, it was a hedge. It's a smart yeah. hedge, though, because data no, science isn't going anywhere. It's a good one. You get your professional experience. You learn how to operate in a company. And then if there's a good jumping off point, I mean, in, 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 the, tran- I mean, all right. in the transition that is underway, coming, evolving, and so on, there's going to be a lot of interesting off ramps for aspiring production and reservoir engineers that want to go off into the transition, I think. So I think that, you know, that's a good background to have to be able to make that move. Right. Jose, yeah. do you do you think I can imagine that it's tempting from your seat to working for an operator? And let's just be honest, Tim, guys like you and me have been into as many different boardrooms as as anybody <laughs> That's out there, seemingly hundreds and hundreds of different oil and gas companies. And for the most part, the environments are fairly sterile. They're not incredibly young or forward thinking um, <clears throat> compared to some of the technology companies that exist right now that are super hip and do your laundry here and bring your dog and whatever it is and, and pronouns. Jose, for you, what is it like? being 24, 25 years old and being a reservoir engineer, like, are you the youngest person in every meeting that you're in? Uh, when I first started, yeah, I was the youngest person by like 10 years. Um, you know, everybody had kids <laughs> and I'm, I'm over nice. here 22. And then, you know, we, we hired <laughs> on some other people my age. I was still the youngest person though. Like they were 24, 25 now, you know, 26, 27. Um, but yeah, there's not that many young people in the industry, you know, one, they just didn't get hired. You know, I, I came into the industry in 2015, uh, graduated 2019. But, you know, those four years going to the career fair, you know, they're depressing. Um, they weren't hiring anybody. Uh, people that did get hired then got laid off in 2020. Um, and then right. at the same time, there's a lot of people that, that don't want to go into the industry just because like the perception now. Uh, so, yeah, there's not that many of us. I'll tell you. I, so I, I came into the industry in the 90s and it was actually very similar not that they didn't want to come into industry because we were just coming out of what at least we thought was the biggest downturn possible was the was the 80s. And so it took probably 15 years, Jeremy, before I was not the youngest person in the room. You know, it, 
the, there was that big slug of basically nobody getting hired. And it wasn't until we worked together when I'd sit in a room as like, okay, I am now the oldest in the room. You know, like we went to Murphy Oil. It was the first time I had a meeting where most of the people were younger than me. It was very interesting. And it's just really entering, you know, that slug of people that are my age and younger starting to move forward. Uh, and the 55, the, the you know, the 60 year olds are starting to make their way out. And now it's know, in the eighties and it's going to happen again. Mm-hmm. It, absolutely. Absolutely. Peaks and valleys very much in this, this industry. Um, Tim for, for you, uh, and Jose, you probably didn't know this, but Tim actually worked at Tibco and was one of the original people that really understood and sold like Spotfire into the oil and gas industry. And he's an engineer. Okay, go ahead. I was number one in <laughs> Spotfire, the first oil and gas guy hired at Spotfire. So, so that leads me to, to you. You said there's issues in, you came in and immediately identified inefficiencies mm-hmm. in the fact that everything was being done in Excel. Do you use tools like Spotfire? Like what are some of the applications that you've leveraged and that you really lean on to keep you out of that sort of siloed spreadsheet world? Yeah, so I, I love Spotfire. Spotfire is like heaven sent. I, I use it all the time. Nice. I, uh, you know, going from us using Excel to then using Spotfire and then, you know, using it properly, uh, not just, you know, connected to Excel, but, you know, pulling it from SQL, using R, Python, uh, you know, the, the whole package of, using Spotfire right, it's been amazing. Um, I think it's been great for the industry, but it's also kind of like a double-edged sword because I think Spotfire is a visualization software, but a lot of people start using it as like an engineering software and kind of start using Spotfire um, to the point where there's limitations to it and you should just, you know, there, there should be another software created specifically for whatever they're trying to replicate within Spotfire. But, um, I'm a, I'm a gigantic fan of Spotfire. I love it. Um, if it's, um, if it's used and done properly, uh, you know, other softwares that I used, I used to use Q engineering all the time, which, you know, was happened to be within Spotfire. And that's why I became such a huge fan of Spotfire. Um, Interesting. and then, uh, combo curve. That's something I use all the time. Um, friends of the show combo curve. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a gigantic fan of combo curve. Uh, you know, whenever they came out, like I think it was during the pandemic, uh, also one of those softwares that I was just kind of blown away by and, you know, the industry really did need it coming from legacy software. That's, yeah. you know, it looks like it was created in 1995 and then they just gave up on it. There was no competition and there's no innovation. Um, <laughs> there was one in between that just never really got adopted that Jeremy and I were pushing that anyway. It's, it's a- <laughs> Actually, somebody told me the other day about value navigator. Um, I go, yeah, that was a good product talking back to the time I was talking about the podcast, talking about working at energy navigator. Mm-hmm. And I said, that was a good product. And somebody goes, it's still a good product. I, I forget yeah. who, but it was like, yeah, you know, some things just work. Um, right. And that's a conversation I've had with, with a number of people lately. Right. Because it, I think there's a lot of noise for somebody like you, even who loves tech to sift through when the value props all sort of sound the same and the UI starts to look sort of similar. Yeah, like, yeah, how yeah. do you start to decipher like what's real and what's not? Because you've probably seen a hundred demos of a hundred products, I would guess at this point. Honestly, you just have to kind of get into the weeds of it. Because, you know, every single demo you see, it looks amazing. And then you start getting into it, you're like, wait, you can't do the simple X or do the simple Y. Um, a lot of it also has to do with the teams. You know, Valley Navigator, I'm also a fan of them. Um, back when... Uh, 
we were when we were using PH2N, I just wanted to get out of PH2N. I'm like, this, this is ridiculous. Like, I hate doing these workflows because they're just extremely inefficient. Uh, so we first brought in uh, Valnav, and then at the same time, Combo Curve kind of uh, came out. And then I'm like, I got to go with Combo Curve. This is, in, in my opinion, it was just kind of more cutting edge in a sense. Yeah, it's more um, modern. But you know, either or, it doesn't matter. If Valnav Combo Curve, they were just better than what I was currently using. So now I just wanted to get out of it. <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, Go ahead, Tim. So let me let me dig into that a little bit. With your background now in machine learning and data science and so on, you've 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 gotten into Combo Curve. You understand, you know, clearly you understand ARPS equations because you've used PhD Win and Valnav and so on. What is <laughs> The acceptance level for moving forward with more data-driven reserves evaluations as opposed to ARPS forecasts for uh, reserves evaluations. Is there a, an acceptance now of, hey, we're going to use these data-driven methods to be able to forecast these wells and get our reserves, or is it still pretty much now we're going to be sticking with ARPS for a long time to go for, going forward? I think uh, I think it's going to be both. Uh, look, with with software like Combo Curve, it gives you the optionality to use more stuff and do more stuff with it. Uh, you know, before it was, you know, you're using PH2 in areas. It's like you can only do it one way, and there hasn't been any software updates in years, you know, maybe decades. Um, so you didn't really have any optionality. And you know, when you get audited, you have to do your official corporate reserves and everything. And these software, like, you're kind of forced to use that. Now yeah. with these new softwares, like you have the optionality to do different things. Uh, in terms of acceptance, I mean, there's a lot of resistance still. You know, just switching softwares, you know, it's a pain uh, to just switch softwares. Um, and you know, every, every, more companies have to uh, start using it. Uh, within oil and gas, I don't think it's uh, companies aren't really trying to drive change. They'd rather let other people drive the change than they'll hop on later once they see it. Kind of been tried and proven. Yeah. So, so let me, let me jump in there. Hang on. Hang on. So yes, I, I think, and Tim, are you familiar with the book Crossing the Chasm? Oh, that's uh love that book. Love that. Jose, book. Are, are you, do you have any familiarity with it? No, no, I don't. So, so it really, I mean, there's a, there's like a skateboard ramp basically that shows you like the, the uh, exception, well, it's a bell curve. It's a bell, it's curve. A bell, it's a bell curve. The exception, the acceptance and adoption rate effectively of, of innovation. And it's only something like two or 3% are actually innovators. And then by then, by the end, you have people who are just definitely laggards. And like you said, followers on, but it's generally like that for most industries, right? We just have the lens of that being oil and gas. Um, but you most likely sit like within that two, two or 3% firmly. But as your career goes on, you might then become more skeptical of the two or three percent and slide different. You know what I mean? Like these things well, can yeah, change. Yeah. And evolve. Yeah. There's there's so many technologies, and I don't know if Combo Curve has crossed it yet or not. But that are in the that stop in the transition from early adopters to what they call early majority. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so that which is generally accepted, but they may not have bought it yet. But that's where many technologies die is in that gap between. Yep innovators and early majority there's, there's a chasm and to live in if you're an innovator you're willing to put up with all of the pain and headaches you know 
you know, when I got my first uh, Wi-Fi hookup at the house, you can't you can't imagine how hard it was to to set up because I was an early adopter of Wi-Fi. And, he also you know, wasn't. Um, he was like negative ten at that point. Yeah, that's right. But you weren't born yet when I was, was doing a that, twinkle so. in his mom's eye, man. Yeah, yeah. So we had anyway. What you're willing to put up with, and I don't know where you where you sit and all that, but uh, I feel like Combo Curve is sitting right at the edge of that, getting ready to jump over the chasm. Yep. If not, they're already kind of starting to make that move. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so you're you're going to have to. Well, there's going to be many more technologies that come along and hit that, and get you get to see all these demos and and kind of move forward with. So I guess we're done plugging the book, crossing the chasm. But it you should you should probably read it to know where you sit as a receiver of technologies okay yeah no i'll check it out yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) so let's let's talk about non-work non non non-business stuff what what gets you going so you you spent you've spent most of your life in houston like you said Mm -hmm. grew up in katy lived in houston how about when you're not at work like what's what kind of keeps you going what's fun for you huh um well you just work all yeah. the time. You work all the time. Yeah. Don't twenty four seven. No, I mean, look. Re- recently, ever since I finished the masters, because you know, during the masters, I had no time. I was working and then doing the masters during the weekends. Uh, but ever since I finished, yeah, I, I picked up jujitsu. I picked up Muay Thai. I picked up uh, uh, tennis, golfing. Uh, you know, normal hobbies. <laughs> you know, I might, I might have a job for you soon. I'm getting ready to start Ooh. hiring uh, martial arts experts. So. Oh yeah, I'm I'm by no means an expert. I uh, six seven months. Yeah, no, I'm still getting whooped all the time. <laughs> have you uh, have you gotten into to any sparring with Colin McClellan at all? Uh, yeah, actually, so he's the one that took me to my first lesson. Okay. So yeah, my first jujitsu. Yeah, completely just whooped my ass. Well, maybe times. we should set him up with Julie then. Julie, Julie <laughs> might take you down. <laughs> yeah, actually, Do you, you know, I think the first time I went there, Julie actually took him down, and I'm like, wow. This is a this is amazing. You know, just seeing Colin over here with my ass several times. She's a badass. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, to, so, do you consider yourself a wildcatter? Um, you know, I, I I've gone close friends with a lot of the the digital wildcatters. Um, I guess unofficially, I don't know. Um, I don't think there's an part. official. There's no secret handshake or anything. I think you can just say, oh, oh they haven't. Oh, they didn't teach you that one yet? Because oh, I mean, I got the tattoo. Is that? <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. He must be a different level because I, I got the handshake, not the tattoo. No, okay. <laughs> but no, I've seen you at a, at a few of their events. You know, their events are fun. I'm actually, it looks like I'm coming down for Empower. Um, we're helping to drive some attendance there because it's just a, it's a, it's really a fantastic event. These worlds are starting to merge and this is sort of what's pushing, uh, the adoption of oil and gas companies, I think more so into the um, mining for Bitcoin space. More and more companies I talk to mm-hmm. have interest in this topic. And Tim, I think you understand this from the, the engineering perspective and just the, the environmental perspective. If you don't have to flare and you can reuse that to create energy, you, you should do it. And not even the, the benefit of making money. That's the side effect. Well, while we're we're on that, I mean, I'm actually dealing with a client right now as a Colorado operator in order to Oop. produce oil, they have to do something with the associated gas and there's no gas takeaway where they are. So they, wow. they're bringing in various uh, technologies, including uh, bit, Bitcoin mining 
there, uh, Caruso, I guess there's no reason not to name drop. They've got five Caruso units out there to basically generate electricity to run Bitcoin mining so they can produce oil and sell it. So they're going out of their way to reduce their flaring. And one of the ways to do it is to do have Bitcoin mining out on site. And they've got a couple of other things they're doing um, out on site to, to avoid flaring so they can produce and sell oil. It's a very interesting uh, thing to do. They're bringing out cryo units and all kinds of things just to really drop it. Now they're, they're also looking into, they're calling it EOR, but injecting the, the ass back into the ground so they, don't, they can't flare it until they get gas takeaway. I was just talking to somebody from Oxy who owns about 600 wells in the DJ Basin about exactly that last week, that Colorado is, is very environmental right? Very, very ESG forward. And, and basically what's happening right now is Colorado says something, New Mexico watches a year later, New Mexico does it a year after that, Texas does it. Like that's literally the L shape that's happening right now with all regulations. And what they're doing, like you just said in Colorado is you, in some place, like you can't emit, like basically you have to be carbon zero, Tim, to, to produce. So the, the, these engineers are being challenged in different ways to, like you said, sequester gas, find ways to reuse product, mine Bitcoin, to not flare at all. And right. it, it's very, very interesting to see it happen up close because it, the, these guys are basically like, the, the way it feels is we're being pushed out of business, but at the same time, we're, we're, we're on the edge of pretty amazing innovation right now. Yeah, I think, well, you look at, I mean, obviously... As we record this, price of oil is just above a hundred. Yeah. Um, it's you've well, if you're going to be you're going to produce oil, it's worth it to try and figure out what to do something with the gas. Even I mean, we're talking to clients who are looking at the gas to liquids uh, techniques. It's not you know not just trying to drop the NGLs out, but actually convert methane into a liquid hydrocarbon to send to the refineries. So there's at this at this price spread, a lot of different things come up, and I could see that really moving into Colorado quickly. So, so Jose, for for you, are these things that are, that are now coming up in conversation within oil and gas companies? What is our strategy around potential elimination of flaring or mining for Bitcoin? Like, does that come up, or is it still kind of solid enough where, hey, you're an engineer, you focus on this segment? It's come up in the sense that. A lot of people are talking about it, but not a lot of people know too much about it. You know, I, I've heard it from, you know, other peers, people I work with, uh, like, oh, we should look into it. But I, I think there's a lot of conversations about it, but no one really seems to fully grasp it from, like, at least my perspective. So, I mean, I'm actually going to the same conference and I'm looking forward to it because I'm like, you know, I want to see how people are actually doing it and whether it could be applicable, say, at our company or somewhere else. Um, and at least understand the details behind it. But, you know, it's, it's exciting because uh, if you were to bring it up four or five years ago, you know, they would look at you crazy. Like, what, what do you mean Bitcoin? What do you mean mining for Bitcoin with oil and gas? Now there's, totally. you know, big name companies going to the conference, talking about it, actually implementing it. So to me, it's just an exciting time. So, so you right now, I will get into the transition in a second. You work for Nextera, which is uh, mm -hmm. a... Well, Trinity, traditionally, Trinity a utility Trinity company. Mm -hmm. So, you know, presumably you're not, there's no interest in 
flaring natural gas, you're trying to get the natural gas to generate electricity for the company, I, I'm assuming. Is, is that the case or do you guys actually have a good oil uh, portfolio as well? Uh, so the, the, I guess specifically I work for Trinity Operating, which is like the upstream side. And yeah, it's like a, it's like a full-blown upstream uh, uh, company. Um, when it comes to any sort of Bitcoin mining, we haven't even like, we've discussed it, but we haven't even really looked into it. Actually, we have a couple of people going to the conference to like actually see like, you know, is it even worthwhile? But uh, the structure over here is a little bit different. Um, but to, to answer your question, Trinity Operating is like the upstream portion. It's like full blown, just upstream. So just uh, like a regular oil company, you're not really mm -hmm. influenced at all by the uh, utility part of the company? No, no, not really. Okay. If, if anything, it just kind of helps when, you know, prices go negative. Right. And we don't have to worry about uh, layoffs in the sense, but other than that, no. No, that's, that's like what Jairus Johnson told us, right? Down in old yeah. Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, uh, Jose, just so you know, uh, no one's ever experienced negative before. So that was a new one right, for yeah. everybody. It wasn't just, <laughs> it's not just part of the cycles, you know, for you. <laughs> that, that was a, that was a moment in time that everybody in the industry is going to remember. Yeah, no, everyone I in the world. Industry, you know, I came into the industry 2019, worked for less than a year before we went like, you know, full remote and then prices go negative. And I'm like texting my coworker. I'm like, so do we have jobs? Like, like, what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I tell you what you do is you, you drain the pool at the apartment yep. complex or wherever you live and you stored the oil there because you're getting paid to, to mm -hmm. take the oil. That's what I, if I had a frack, if I had had a frack tank, I would have just filled it with oil that day, and you know something. He lives. Mm -hmm. He lives on the um, penthouse of that. Uh, what is it? A hotel that has the pool shaped like Texas on the oh, top. Yeah? What is that? The Marriott Marquis. Oh, Marriott yeah. downtown. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. That place is awesome. I've actually never been up there, but I feel like I've seen it on TV. Like I, I just magazine. love when they they have the blimp for sporting events and they're going around Always. town and they, and you see this Texas pool on top. I was mm -hmm. like, man, that really does look cool. Have you guys been up there? Have you guys ever been up there? No, I you know I've been wanting to go there because <laughs> I used to live like down the street from it, and I'm like, we should just you know I never wanted to book a room, but I've always wanted to go there just to check it out. I want to check out that pool. You know, another little oddity in Houston that I, I, there's a building downtown Houston. I wish I could tell you the cross streets. When you look up, there's a pool that extends out about five, yes. six feet. Mm -hmm. So you can look up and you see people standing in the mm -hmm. pool. It's fascinating. And it's, it's, of course, to me, I've got a moderate fear of heights. I just get sick to my stomach thinking that someone's in the pool. So. But a, mo I, a moderate fear of heights on the scale of fear of heights, which is scared shitless and then not scared at all. What's moderate? Like a three? So if so, let me. I want to test. One, on we're going one to ten. Have you been out to? Have you been to Chicago? Up yes. to the um, what is it? The Sears Tower or the Hancock, where you go all the way up? I, I went to the Hancock. Down, the glass comes down. Do you no, do that? You don't. I do wouldn't that. do that one. But I did at the Hancock at the vertical walls stick my head on the wall and look down. But I will tell you that knees are buckling, stomach is churning, you know, the whole thing. Um, if it was open air, that's, I have to grip and talk myself into looking over the edge. That's, that's where I am. How so about you, I don't, Jose? Fear of heights? 
you know, I don't have a fear of heights, but anytime I'm in those situations, the, you know, the thought crosses your mind, like, what if the, what if the window breaks or <laughs> what if, uh, you know, something happens and shakes? So I'd say, I'd say like a three, like a four, you know, moderate, the moderate. Yeah. again, and my, I guess I would put myself in moderate too, but in the right situation, it could be absolutely off the charts. Like 10. <laughs> yeah. Is there a dog wow. in your office? Is that what I just heard? No, no, no. It's, he's just telling everybody that someone came to my house so oh it's you i thought no i thought jose maybe brought his dog into mine (laughs) so um i want to talk a little bit more about houston about h-town so so do you feel like you're gonna stay there like i know you've you know you've been there you're still a young guy you've been there most of your life but you've kind of built something in, in houston do you feel like you're a houston guy through and through or could you see yourself possibly moving somewhere else so so uh little bit of background. Um, I, I got a new job. It's going to be fully remote. So if I didn't want to stay in Houston. Whoa, he just dropped it on us. No, no, I, yeah. I was going to, I was going to bring Hell it up. Oh no. Here we go. Where are you going, boy? Uh, EQT. 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 Yeah. EQT. He's moving to Pittsburgh. No, no. remote, sir. No, <laughs> no so th- this gig is fully remote. Um, so, I mean, technically, if I wanted to live, you know, in the middle of nowhere, I could, but. I don't think I see myself leaving Texas and I'll probably still stay in Houston. Um, but you know, when kids come into the picture, uh, and I got to live in the suburbs, it's fantastic that I don't have to drive an hour, hour and a half, you know, three hours in one day. Uh, but no, I, I think I'll stay in Houston, uh, probably Texas at least, you know, maybe Austin, I don't know, somewhere around there, but you Texas know, fully remote changed the game. So, you know, pre-pandemic, if you would have asked me that question, I would have stayed in Houston or, you know, maybe some, you know, Midland or, you know, a- anywhere where there was oil and gas jobs at. Ever since, uh, you know, code happened and then now remote is an option. It's nice to have that optionality. And at the same time, you know, it, it just changed the game. Like if companies want to compete for talent, you have to offer yeah. hybrid at the very least or remote. Yeah. I, have I you thought, been up to Have you been up to Pittsburgh in uh, in this process of interview with EQT, or has it all been remote for the interviews? No, complete remote. Wow. Yeah. I'm gonna tell you, Jeremy awesome. and I have the same experience that that uh, you may change your mind. I, let's say s- summer. I wouldn't go in early January, but in Pittsburgh is one of the most undersold communities yeah. in the country. Uh, the impression that we all have is just no one's really talking about it, but it is a great community and a great place, I think, to live and grow up. So you might change your mind eventually if you go up there a few times, I think. I don't know, Jeremy. Pittsburgh, Tulsa, Milwaukee, anywhere in North Carolina, Tulsa. There's a lot of places on the map that are underrated. I would have put Austin there probably 15 years ago before it was like as, you know, corporate as before, whatever, before you know, California found it. Yeah, yeah, before the explosion of Austin. When you can still afford a house. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, there. Pittsburgh is really, really nice. The, the problem there is that it's only sunny about 100 days a year. So, I mean, coming from a place like Houston, where it's probably sunny 240 days a year or something like that, um, would be, it'd probably be cold. Is, is there any expectation that you're going to have to like go up there and like meet the team and go to meetings and stuff? Like, will you go to Pittsburgh? Uh, I don't think so. At least not in the near future. You know, I'm sure oh. um, further down the line, I possibly I may have to go up there, but 
for the most part, at, at the very minimum, I'm assuming it would be hybrid. You know, go go up there every once in a while. Uh, once they name you the chief data science science officer, they might need you to come up for certain investor meetings and things like that. You know, <laughs> you know, I actually saw that they were hiring uh, directors fully remote, which wow, unheard of for EMPs. Yeah, you know, just going fully remote. Wow. Yeah. That's that's nice. I, I think it's a very I mean, that's an evolving company, EQT. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, it's interesting that cool. they've come to that level. Um, so that's, that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's great. I've certainly embraced re being remote and, and resisting any urge to be pulled back into the office. Our whole company kind of has mm -hmm. done that. You can go to the office if you want or stay remote, but I think, I think I'm done with, you know, trying to go into an office every day. Uh, so I, you know, I don't know, Jeremy, Jeremy's, I think, have you ever worked in an office, Jeremy? You know, it was interesting. So in a very brief period of time, when I worked for Petro DE, there was an office in Broomfield and they all, everybody else went into the office all the time. So if I didn't go in, they're like, Hey, why aren't you here? And I liked it. I actually didn't mind going in. The problem was I was way less effective because of all the conversations and the water cooler talk. And I noticed that right away because I'd been fully remote for like eight, you know, more than half my career at that point. So but, I was like, they, they're like, we love having you here. I'm like, I'm, I'm sure you do. And I get something out of it socially. I just get way less done. You know, it's interesting. I, I've told this story a few times when I was at Schlumberger and quit to go to, to Spotfire and we were remote. <laughs> that was really the first time. So that was in the year 2000. Sorry, sorry, uh, Jose, again, you're just, you're, you're not even in the United States yet at that point. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. Anyway, we're, we're fully remote. And I, I told everybody, you know, what's interesting is I can get done in three hours. What used to take me eight at the office. Okay. But if you tell me what I missed, what I missed about being in the office, it was the distractions in the hallway. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a really weird. That's a weird thing. I mean, uh, you really have to work a just a little bit harder to get that connection. And I think that that's going to be that interesting challenge. Cause you know, I think Jose, you may struggle with what is, are you part of the company culture or aren't you having started remote and never, you know, never actually being in the office to be, you know, pushed away in the, on the remote side. So that, that's going to be an interesting challenge, I think for you. Yeah. No, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see how it turns out, but, and, and, and I've, seen, I've heard the flip side of that where like, oh, you need that human interaction or you need that, you know, face to face. But, you know, you got to embrace change, um, especially with like the way, you know, just look at tech. A lot of tech companies went completely remote. Right. And a lot of it, regardless, you know, if you're a tech company, regardless of how you feel about remote work, if you don't go fully remote, you're going to lose all your talent. Um, so they didn't really have a choice. I think within oil and gas may or may not happen, but. You know, say a company with EQT, if you don't, if you don't want to leave Texas, you don't want to move to Pittsburgh, um, you're losing a, a ton of talent by not going fully remote. Them going yeah, fully what? remote, they finally have access to all the talent. Right. And, Why would they limit themselves mm -hmm. to people that only live in Western Pennsylvania or whatever that is, What you know, mm -hmm. West Virginia, Ohio, or people who are willing to live there? Because people like you, your mm -hmm. family, your, I guess you're engaged, right? So your wife, you want to build a family in Houston, 
you want to be a reservoir engineer, it's conscious choice, right? And now your right. options have expanded a little bit more. And it's it's cool. When you go to Pittsburgh, you'll have a different appreciation for it because you don't actually have to live there full time. Uh, yeah. For you, for other people, yeah. maybe it's the right thing. Maybe they want to live there. But I do have a question for you. And maybe this is a lot to chew on. I remember when I was, I remember when I was 25, <laughs> I, I felt this immense amount of pressure and stress in the world. Cause like some of my friends and people around me were just, just such high achievers and going out and getting so fast. And what is my place in the world? I'm confused. Should I go back to school? I don't, you know, and sort of all these things. Do you, do you have the capacity to think like, what your career could look like in 10 years. And, and is that you like running an oil and gas company an oil and gas tech company? Is it working in data science? Like have you given thought to what your, your career path looks like 10 years from now? If you asked me this pre COVID, I probably would have told you like strictly <laughs> reservoir engineering. Um, yeah. Ever since I finished the master's program, you know, for, for a period of time, I thought I wanted to get out of the industry, kind of go more on the tech side. Sure. Uh, do data science and then then i realized you now i, I want to stay within the industry um it's still kind of up in the air but i do know that i want to be more on the data side whatever that looks like say it's reservoir engineer and kind of more data focused or data science well you know i say data science but i guess more like data analytics um just because well kind of side comment at least with the nolan gas i think data science has a very limited use case a lot of buzzwords very overhyped and as we progress, there's going to be, you know, less data science teams and more data engineering teams, data analysts, hmm. you know, the, the whole full picture um, instead of just like the buzzword of data science. Um, not sure what it looks like, but I do want to progress in my career, however that looks like, say it goes with a data focus side or reservoir engineering side, but still kind of up in the air. Don't really have a concrete answer on that one. Let me, let me ask you, I'm going to reverse the question, go back. So you're, you said you came to the U S when you were five with your family. Mm -hmm. Um, and at some point, I don't know, maybe 12 years old, you start thinking about, yeah, what would I like to do? So is mm -hmm. it just the fact that you were in Katy, Texas, Houston, Texas area that you said, yeah, oil and gas would be good. Or is it something you got to U of H and then decided, yeah, I'm going to go oil and gas. What, what pulled you into the industry? You want to cut that cheddar? Uh, um, <laughs> I knew I wanted to do engineering and you know, um, oh, I'll take it back. I didn't really want to do engineering because I didn't want to study for it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I knew that I could do engineering um, and I didn't want to like uh, limit myself by, you know, just not putting in the effort. Um, Cause you know, you know, my, my dad uh, is an engineer as well. An electrical engineer. Um, okay. And you know, I needed to pick an engineering or I didn't, I wanted to go into engineering and I needed to pick a major. So what are the highest paying majors? Petroleum engineering was the number one. Okay. So yeah, originally I got interested because of the salary. Uh, you know, luckily I ended up liking the industry and what I was studying, but, um, yeah, originally got into it because of the salary. Then I, it was, I found it to be, you know, very interesting. I like the industry. I like the people, you know, everything about it. Uh, but originally it had to do, Two main things. Uh, it was the pay, and it was because I was in Houston. And you know, growing up in Katy, a ton of people worked in the oil and gas industry. Mm. Pre twenty fifteen, everyone's like getting get into petroleum engineering. Get into, like that was like the big thing. 
And then, you know, when I went in, in 2015, oil crashed and there was yeah. mass layoffs, mass layoffs. All of a sudden it turned around like, don't do petroleum engineering, don't, don't go into oil and gas. And I ended up saying just because I was stubborn for the most part, I, I was stubborn and, you know, looking back What's into that? it. Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's in part why you're here, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, you, you know, it's funny whenever I was still in college because I'd see other people with other majors getting internships, you know, getting offers, and I'm like, oh, you guys, you guys are actually getting jobs? <laughs> you know, from <laughs> 2015 to 2019, like nobody, at least nope. none of my peers, a lot of people, uh, people that I knew, like nobody was getting interviews nobody was getting any sort of jobs yeah um if you got an internship it was kind of like you were like a unicorn um so you know like, I, sarah, I, I, like um like sarah stogner <laughs> right right yeah no you, you, you're, you're like a unicorn if you're able to find a if you're able to actually land a job um I was yeah, how did you to, how did you get a job how did you do it man i got really lucky it was uh i mean i I, I guess you could make the argument that I put myself in the position to be lucky, but it was oh, just kind of through networking. Right, right. But at, at the end of the day, I got lucky because I know a lot of my peers, you know, they did everything right and they still weren't able to find jobs. Um, and they just had to, you know, go out of the industry, even though they really did want to work with an oil and gas. Um, yeah, through a series of fortunate events, just through networking, I was able to uh, land an internship. And then that in- internship landed to a job after, you know, uh, busting my ass and everything, you know, I really wanted to get hired at the time um, just because like, you know, I had one shot to uh, do everything right. Just because my, my entire career, just there, there weren't any jobs available at the time. Um, but it, it was just a series of fortunate events. I have a lot of people that I know that weren't able to actually break into the industry that should have in essence gotten jobs. Yeah, no, that actually, Oh, Tim just had a power outage. Wow. Power outage. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, yeah, it's just you and me. We're just going to keep rolling with it. But there was a song that, um, that it reminded me of something when you were singing it. There was a song. Let me. <laughs> Eminem. Yep, here we go, here we go, here we go. Yep, that's what you gotta do, dog. Yep, that, that, that's, that's how we uh, do it. Yeah, that's kind of how it went down. Um, you know, when I finally got the opportunity to intern somewhere, I was really hungry at the time. Uh, and luckily, I was able to stay on with the industry even through 2020. Because you know that that was another thing. Even people that got into the industry, you know, say they were with a service company or anything like that, 2020 happened, and then they they were out of a job. And, yeah. Uh, your hedge, your hedge, you know, it, it really does make a lot of sense to me. And it, it also explains now a little bit more in our interactions too why you do understand the tech piece so well, like you get right into the data 
fairly quickly because I guess that's your job, right? I mean, like you said, you're a data engineer as much as a reservoir engineer, um, probably at this point, you know, um, which is a, a unique skill set to have. Um, what what advice, if if any, would you give to to somebody that's like you five years ago? Well, um, two things. Well, multiple things, but two main things. Uh, one, go to as many networking events as you can. But you know, uh, I say that good one. LinkedIn. Yeah, I mean, you know, part of it. Yeah, get good grades, whatever. Really, like, go to networking events. Yeah, I got really bad grades. My my GPA in college was a 2.63. I don't think it's really going to affect anything at this point for me to admit that and stand mm-hmm. it at, at this point in my career. Um, but you're right. Um, and for everybody, it's different. I don't, Colin didn't go to college and he may at some point now get a degree, but he didn't. And, and he's one of the smarter business guys I know. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's, there's lots of different skills that, that people have that education can help or, or not. Do you, do you see yourself possibly going back to school? Uh, possibly for an MBA later down the road. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, well, at least for the near future, I'm kind of done with school for a little bit. Uh, kind of want a little, yeah. a little break, but uh, well, going back to your original question. Yeah. Good enough. You know, obviously get good grades, you know, stay above a 3.0 GPA, but then go to networking events, get on Twitter, you know, get on EFP, uh, both LinkedIn, Twitter, Great networking uh, tools. Um, Get on Twitter. You know, I got off of Twitter recently because I found it becoming a little bit toxic. Um, so yeah, it can be an echo chamber like for sure. Break. Yeah. yeah. Became a two-week. So I'm on like a two-week break, and I just notice mm-hmm. when I have it, I'm just scrolling all the time. I can't mm-hmm. get away from Twitter, man. Twitter is my biggest social media weakness. I've finally identified it. Yeah. No, uh, I spend an absurd amount of time on Twitter. <laughs> <Godly> <laughs> amount of hours on Twitter. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you I mean, probably get your news. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, for, for, for anyone listening to the podcast, there's a huge um, oil and gas community within Twitter called EFT. Um, and, you know, you have everything from like CEOs uh, to people in the office, people in the field. Uh, and everyone's anonymous. And, you know, what matters in that aspect is kind of like the content that you put out. So in essence, like, that's where the networking uh, kind of comes into play. You know, there's a ton of memes. It's hilarious. It's, a, it's just a good time there. But your position doesn't really matter in the sense that you could be 18 years old and be putting out content that people like, people, um, people appreciate. And they could think you're, you know, some 30, 40-year-old reservoir engineer. Or, you know, who knows? Take your pick. Yeah, who knows? It's, it's not so much your position, but kind of like what you're saying and the content that you're putting out there. And that, to me, and then there's frack slap. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. then yeah. there's frack slap. But you know, it, it's just a different avenue to network. You know, uh, both Twitter, both LinkedIn, and going to actual networking events. Uh, I think, to me, well, that on top of you know just being hungry and asking questions, being humble, yeah. that to me would be the biggest thing that I would tell someone coming into the industry to do. Um, you know, just, just getting good grades isn't going to get you a job. Well, I, I don't know, maybe the hundred, hundred dollar oil, it might, but back when well, everyone's, know, everyone's a genius at a hundred dollar oil, is I mean, that's, yeah, the, that's the rule. Like <laughs> when, uh, when I was in college from, uh, 15 to 19, yeah, it was, it was very hard to get any sort of job. And really the only people 
me, me included, but anybody that I knew that got jobs, uh, specifically, you know, with the super majors and everything was through networking. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you didn't come in with a network. You had to go and find it and build it yourself. And, and you continue to do that. I, I think that's, that's a big part of this. I mean, just, just the other day, Tim, um, I had lunch with Trent Green and I've always sort of known Trent. Trent's going to come on the podcast here sooner than later, but uh, he said that he's fracked wells on six different continents and 47 different countries. You know what I mean? So wow. like the things and, and, you know, and that was from continued networking. This is somebody who I'd only known tangentially over the course of the past 12, 10 years, whatever, something like that. And then here we are, um, having lunch, I'm like, man, you got a good story to tell on the podcast. So I would agree. I mean, you and I met more recently, Jose, and, and I think um, I, I think one of the things that's beautiful about oil and gas too, and, and you summarized this on uh, about EFT is there's really not a, I mean, there, there's sort of an openness about um, your age and your ability to contribute and uh, sort of the overall value you provide with a lack of judgment. Right. I think a lot of people are just sort of judged uh, on their uh, ability to produce and the value they can provide, which is is what this industry is all about. It's a lot of go getters. I think that's a recent change from when I came no in, though. I think that that's a I think that's a, a cultural shift over the last few years. I think that the great. Crew change that we talked about, however long ago, that was the big problem facing the industry. I think that really drove home the, you know, no, it's contributions. It's not. It's not age. You, 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 if you can contribute, you're going to be, yeah. you're going to be brought in. Tim, um, are, is everything okay over there? You just sort of showed back up and started talking. <laughs> well, we just participating like nothing happened. Just had a, a, a power blip. I don't know what happened there. And I had to wait for the Wi-Fi signal to reconnect and get on the internet and all that business. And, uh, so you guys probably solved world peace while I you was You have off, no idea what you missed. It's it was the greatest yeah, content crazy. that anyways, um, we're going to, we're going to cut it. This is, what do we say, Tim? Usually a, a Houston commute. This could be a Woodlands to downtown commute right here. Someone yeah, this is going to be a little bit longer. It's not a, not a commute during Christmas holidays. This is a commute during a full on $100 oil commute, but Jose Rodriguez, thank you so much, my guy. We appreciate you. Best of luck with EQT. I know you're going to tear it up. Yeah, I no, appreciate it. Thanks for having me here. Uh, yeah, I no, appreciate it. Have a good one. <laughs>